We're thankful to be back together tonight for another period of uh, worship and study. And uh, we will be talking about another account from the Scriptures that uh, you have read this last week. I was telling a couple people, the challenge for me is deciding what to preach on uh, every week. You know, I'm picking passages or themes from the reading from the week prior, and there's just so much good stuff to choose from. It's challenging. Uh, For instance, this week, we went all the way from Adam to Abraham, and so there's plenty of stuff there in just the book of Genesis, not to mention the passages from Mark that you read, which I didn't even make mention of this morning, and three wonderful psalms that that I could preach. You know, I could preach on each of those psalms, so that's going to be the difficulty for me, but uh, occasionally on Sunday nights, we'll be able to cover some additional material that we didn't cover uh, on Sunday morning, and that's the case for this evening. We're going to look at, well, the, uh, the start of this story was read for us earlier, Genesis chapter 4 this evening, starting at about verse 1, going beyond verse 5, that's the passage that we heard earlier. I talked last week about the importance of locating the stories of the Scriptures in the bigger story of the Scriptures. And we talked about the difference between the upper story and the lower stories. When we talk about lower stories, we're talking about the various accounts of Scripture that deal with man and uh, most often his rebellion, but sometimes his devotion to God. We're talking about the upper story. We're talking about the grand narrative. We're talking about God's work behind the scenes. And it is always helpful and needful for us to see where each of the accounts in Scripture, all the different types of writing, fit within that larger narrative. So tonight, we're talking about a lower story, but we will try to place it within the upper story. And Tonight we're talking about the ultimate tale of sibling rivalry. There have been a lot of stories. I just heard uh, Brooks give a, hmm, maybe maybe he knows something about sibling rivalry. Maybe you know something about it. A lot of stories told through the years about uh, competition and, and maybe strained relationships between siblings. Uh, but this one, this one takes the cake. And of course, it's not just a tale. It's not just a story. It is a true account. It is, it is a, a historical account about two brothers and the greatest sibling rivalry of all time. You know, I believe that every passage um, in God's Word has a purpose. It has a function. Not just every passage, but every verse. If we believe what we say we believe, about how God's Word is inspired, breathed out by God, then we would acknowledge that every word, every letter of God's Word is there for a reason. Sometimes it's not overtly clear to us at a, at a cursory glance what that is. And so it's up to us to look a little deeper to figure out what that is. But we do believe that everything in this book is in here for a reason. So what is the purpose, what is the function of the story of Cain and Abel, these two brothers. 
Let's start and we will answer that question. You will begin to see the answer to that question as we move along in this account. Let's start here in uh, verse 1 of Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, this is good news on the heels of an extremely tragic account. The account of the fall of man, of Adam and Eve, and they're being kicked out of this idyllic place that God had created them to live in, the Garden of Eden. But here we see that, that Adam and Eve, they conceive and they uh, have this child, Cain, and so things are, seem to be looking up. And the human race continues, and the question remains, will the next generation and those after be able to resist the evil one, unlike Adam and Eve? Will they be able to stand up against the serpent, unlike the first two humans. But there's, there's a glimmer of hope as we begin to read chapter 4. A new generation of humans enters the world, beginning with Cain. And Eve says, when he's born, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And so she gives God credit. God has not left the scene entirely. God is still present with his people despite their rebellion. God is still working in their lives. And Eve gives God the glory. And so there, there's some good news as we begin chapter 4. There's a reason to lift our eyes a bit, to look up. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Let's talk about a few things here. Why is it that God regards Abel's offering and not Cain's? Well, I don't know exactly. We, we can't know for sure. But a couple ideas as we talk about this. The state of the brothers' hearts probably plays a role here. What's going on behind the offering, not just the offering itself? Because you know as well as I, when we read Scripture, it's never the case that the right offering with the wrong heart is pleasing to God. It always matters to God what our motivation is in offering whatever it is we are offering. So it's not just about offering the right thing, it's about doing it with the right attitude, with the right heart. That is what God is concerned about throughout the Scriptures. And we can see a, an indication of this in the different gifts that they bring. It seems that Abel's gift is costlier to him. It is a more precious gift. He gives of, what does it say? The firstborn of his flock, and the fat portion. So it seems that Abel goes above and beyond from the way the Scriptures describe it, versus Cain, who simply brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that the Hebrews writer uh, attributes Abel's offering to his faith. And so we know from the New Testament that what was behind Abel's offering was a strong faith in God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. 
And so it is probably the case that this is about more than just offering an animal sacrifice versus uh, a um, sacrifice from the ground. This is about what was going on behind the scenes within the ones who made the offering. It's also possible that the brothers were aware of the offerings that were pleasing to God and were unpleasing to God. Now, this is, of course, before the uh, Mosaic Law, which laid all of that out, what you were supposed to bring, when, at what feast day. It's before all that. But it's certainly possible that Cain and Abel knew more about what was pleasing and and displeasing to God than we do, than what we can read here in the text. Uh, We aren't sure about it, but they may have been. At any rate, the offering that Cain brought to God did not please him, and he had no regard for it. But the offering that Abel brought to God did please God, and he did have regard for that. And what is Cain's reaction? He's angry. He is irate. He's mad. And instead of being angry, how should he have he reacted? What should have Cain's reaction been? Penitence, right? A repentant heart. A sense of remorse. A desire to offer what God wanted him to offer. To offer what his brother offered. Now, it's not that anger is inherently sinful. We know that Jesus became angry on occasion. The most famous of which is when he enters the temple and the money changers are taking up space where the Gentile worshipers should have been allowed to enter and Jesus gets angry. I mean, there's no other way around it. He overturns the tables and drives out the money changers. He's he's mad in that moment. And so we know that anger in and of itself is not sinful. Uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be angry, yet do not sin. But that verse tells us that if anger is left unchecked, if it's left unrestrained, if it's allowed to get out of control, then anger can lead to sin. And if you know this story, you know that's exactly what happens here. Let's keep reading in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Several things I notice about these verses. First of all, we've already already made mention of this. After the fall, this is after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They've taken the fruit of the one tree that God told them they needed to avoid, and as a result, God has punished them, disciplined them, cast them out of the Garden of Eden. Here we are in the second generation, and we see God's grace. God has continued to communicate with His people. He is speaking directly here to Cain. It seems that He is offering Cain a warning. Like, Cain, you better get your anger in check before you do something that you regret. And so what I see here, in just the fact that God is speaking to Cain, is warning Cain, I see God's grace. I see His favor. I see His care and concern 
for his precious human creation. He goes to Cain and he gives Cain a chance to change course before it's too late. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Don't you know if you do well, you'll be accepted? If you do my will, then that will be pleasing to me and it will go well with you. The principle that God conveys here is, was in practice throughout the Scriptures. It's still in practice today. It is just a, an eternal truth. If you do well, things will go well with you. We see this principle uh, reiterated. The best example, I think, in the Scriptures is in the Proverbs. This seems to be one of the main themes of the Proverbs. Listen to a representative example here from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. In other words, if you operate by God's will, if you follow after the will of God, then generally speaking, your life will go better than someone who rejects God's will. Now that doesn't mean in a broken world we will never encounter trouble and trial and hardship. That is inevitable. Good people face difficult circumstances. However, generally speaking, this is true, is it not? If you operate by God's will, by the one who created this world and knows how it's supposed to work, then naturally, life will go better for you. You will be operating according to the operating in this world according to the one who made it and knows how it's supposed to work. If you do well, if you follow God's will, things will go well with you and you'll be approved by God, accepted by him. God shares this principle with Cain, it is true today, and God also with Cain warns him about the danger of sin. And these verses teach us about sin and temptation. What we already know from experience. And that is, sin is always close at hand. Isn't it? It's always crouching at the door. It's always waiting to pounce when we least expect it. It's always waiting to attack us at our most weakest at our weakest point you know i think paul compares the devil to a lion not just to talk about the fierceness of the devil but to talk also about how sly and stealth like the devil is how the devil though fierce and and mean and dangerous is also very sneaky God tells Cain here, sin is crouching at your door. So be careful. But we should know that growing in our faith and studying God's Word and enjoying fellowship with the saints and praying to God and seeking to live by His will, all of those things and more, resting in His grace, Uh, basking in His love, all of these things will help us to be able to avoid temptation, to conquer the devil, to keep sin at bay. I think about this prayer that Jesus 
teaches us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the lines from his model prayer is, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think that should be a daily prayer on the lips of every Christian. Lead us not into temptation today, Lord. Deliver us from evil. I say daily because we need deliverance from evil on a daily basis. Do we not? Deliver me from evil today. Help me to avoid temptation today. And if we are constantly seeking God's will, it will be easier to overcome those demons in our lives. I think about one of my favorite movies called A Beautiful Mind that came out 20 years ago. I think I've used illustrations from this movie before. But it's about the renowned mathematician John Nash, this Princeton-educated, famous mathematician. The story follows Nash's life when he gets into Princeton. And, you know, it, it focuses on his genius, but it also reveals in time that, that uh, John Nash dealt with hallucinations because he was a paranoid schizophrenic. And in this movie, we learn that many of the people who are the main characters, the people that he knows, are, do not exist in real life. He has dreamed them up. But through medication and through strengthening his mind in various ways, he, over the course of his life, was able to manage these hallucinations. And at the end of his life, when he's awarded the Nobel Prize for his work in, math, in mathematics in the in early 1990s, the final scene of that movie is he and his wife and his grown son, they're leaving this grand auditorium in Harvard, and he looks over and he sees some of these people that he thought he knew that have only existed in his mind. But now, towards the end of his life, they don't have as much influence over him. He's able to keep them at a distance. Yes, he still knows that they're there. Yes, he still sees them, but they don't have the kind of power over him that they once did. I think sin is, and temptation is very much like that for Christians. For Christians who are serious about growing in their faith. Yes, those temptations are still out there for us, but as we grow in our faith, as we become stronger in the Lord, as we increase our tools and resources in being able to resist, we're able to keep those temptations at a distance. God's warning to Cain, should we should heed it as well. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. Its desire is against you. Its desire is to destroy you. Be on guard at all times. You must rule over it. And the good news for us as Christians is that through Christ, you can. You can resist. You can conquer. But what happens with Cain in verse 8? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel. And he killed him. And so the optimism from the first verse of chapter 4 has been totally obliterated. And this passage has the distinction of recording for us the first murder that the world had ever seen. And it was not a crime of passion. It was premeditated. And I say that because of an extra line that we see in other manuscripts 
where at the end of uh, this first sentence of verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and said, let us go out to the field. And Cain said that, having in his mind all along, I think, that he was going to take his brother's life in cold blood. It was cruel, it was calculated, it was heinous. Cain kills his brother. Why? Because he's angry and because he's jealous. He takes the life of his own brother. And so we go from optimism in verse 1 to seeing humanity spiraling deeper and deeper into the pit of sin. We have taken a, a tailspin, a nosedive down deeper into iniquity. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, God's not yet done with Cain. God is not finished with him yet. He says, where is Abel, your brother? Now, did God need to ask him that question? Did God need to ask Cain where his brother was? God knows. God knew. But God is, I think, giving Cain a chance to confess here, to fess up. To what he's done. But does he do that? No he does not. And this further illustrates. The hardness of Cain's heart. And the depth to which he had fallen away from God. God says. Where is Abel your brother? And, he, and Cain says. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's response. One of the mo most famous questions in the Bible. One of the most famous questions in all of history. One of the questions I think that our ladies are talking about in their class, Life's Greatest Questions, on Wednesday nights. I once heard a preacher say, this is the problem, that Cain only thinks he ought to be a keeper of his brother. He only thinks he ought to just sort of know where his brother is. In fact, Cain is supposed to be not his brother's keeper, but his brother's brother. Not just keeping tabs on him, but responsible for caring for his well-being. And he does just the opposite. Instead of taking care of him and looking out and having his back, he takes his life. And so we see how far Cain has fallen from God's will for him. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Why are you asking me? And now look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so we see Cain, the second generation, is now punished in a way that is similar to Adam's punishment, which just illustrates the stranglehold that's, that sin still has on humanity. Let me read just a few more verses here, and we'll wrap this up. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
So in other words, I shall be out of your sight. I shall be distant from your presence. I won't have you to take care of me. And what does God say to him? The Lord says, not so if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. On the hills of his rebellion, directly, immediately after the cold-blooded murder of his brother, God says to Cain, I will avenge your death if somebody tries to kill you. And so once again, the baffling, relentless grace of God is on display. And we see here yet another illustration that God cares for Cain. I will avenge whoever might kill you. And we also read that the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. What is the mark on Cain? Well, wouldn't we all love to know? (laughs) A lot of scholarly speculation about that mark through the years. But the fact of the matter is, we have no idea what the mark was. It was probably visible. But beyond that, we don't know what is the mark. We don't know except what we know is it is a, a, a symbol, a tangible symbol of God's continued care for Cain. And so as we close up tonight, we'll close right there. And I know that, well, let me, I'll finish with verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which means wandering. He goes further east of the Garden of Eden. What is the purpose of this story? What is its function? And I know there are some difficult verses that go after it. And as I was reading verses 17 through 26, maybe like me, you were a little bit confused about what that's all about. But I think when we read about Cain's descendants and we see another murder, we see the continued effects of sin and how that is carrying forward in humanity. But what is the purpose of this account, this story? Well, it's a reminder of the power of temptation. We talked about that. The fierce consequences of sin and the relentless grace of God. These are the big themes that we see in the story of Cain and Abel. And I do want to say that verse 25 provides another hopeful note here when we see that Adam and Eve have another son named Seth and the bloodline that continues through Noah, Abraham, and David and eventually to Christ will carry on through him. Tonight I want to close with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. I think about how God gives Cain a chance. He gives him a chance to cool down. A chance to rethink what he's about to do. Cain does not take that opportunity. God gives Cain a second chance. He gives us second chances and third chances and fourth chances. If you are living in rebellion against God, if you are living in some unfaithful way tonight, I want to encourage you, as the Hebrews writer says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Which implies that there is coming a day uh, after which repentance will not be possible. But it is today. It is while this earth still spins and while we still have breath in our lungs, it is still possible God has delayed His coming so that as many people as possible can be saved and can enter into His kingdom. 
And so as we sit here, it is possible for you to enter into a relationship with God for the first time or the 50th time if you need to come and repent and be restored into a right relationship with Him. We invite you to do that while it is still called today. Why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?